Don't you love and appreciate quiet moments like this as a family? Those of you that are in here, those of you that are watching online, this is our family, isn't it? This is the family of God. There are no single individuals sitting in here that are alone. If you are part of God's family, you're us. And we are here to encourage each other. Don't you look forward to Sunday mornings where we can come together and be encouraged by God's presence? It's a wonderful thing. Don't you wish you could just take this with you Monday morning and Tuesday morning? Maybe we could just live in this room and just bring your work in here, right? Bring your school in here and we could just encourage each other. But you know, we actually have that encouragement going out. We have God's word, don't we? We have the presence of the Holy Spirit as we go from this place each week. You know, when you're in here, you enjoy it, and you go to your life groups and your, the kids' ministries and all the different things, and you love hearing God's Word, but sometimes maybe you feel, I just wish I could get God coaching me each week. Like, if, if God walked out on stage today and kind of put the chair down, turned it around and just sat down and looked at you and said, any questions? I mean, could we do an open mic? I mean, would we be here for a while? But we have God's coaching on our life every day. This is the Word of God. Amen, church? This is His revealed Word to us. And the good news is when you walk out today, you take God's Word with you. You take it all week, and you have the coaching of God. I appreciate coaches, coaches in my life. I've had godly men throughout the years that have just been that encouragement to me. Uh, I think of men like Dave Adams, who was my student pastor, and I still get to work with him uh, teaching at Liberty. Uh, men like Doug Ranlett, uh, who's been a pastor in my life, and, and he uh, works here at Thomas Road. Uh, a guy like Lance Witt, a friend of mine, who I'll call every once in a while and say, Lance, give me some coaching. Uh, being in life groups, people like George. George, we've been in a life group, and when George would share wisdom, I would take that, uh, because he's a little bit older than me. I take, receive the coaching, but we have coaching through God's Word. And that's what brings us to 1 Timothy today, is God's coaching for God's house. And I want you to take first uh, the Bible and open up to 1 Timothy. We're going to continue in our series, and we're going to talk to bit today from Paul's letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy. And the theme here basically is just coaching for God's house. God wants to give us some instructions today, some ordered instructions, and so whatever we read, you just agreed with me that this is God's Word. So whatever we read, we must obey. True? Whatever is in here, we obey because it's God's Word. And so Paul is talking and he's writing this letter to his friend, his son in the faith named Timothy. Let's read chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son, in the faith. Paul had met Timothy several years before, maybe 15 years before. We read about it in the book of Acts. And he was like a son to Paul. They had been missions partners as they'd gone along. Paul is writing now about 62 AD from maybe Macedonia. He's out of jail, which is kind of a rare thing. And he's traveling and he's preaching. And he writes back to Timothy, who he left in Ephesus, to kind of coach the church and the church leaders, the new church that was there. And so it's a very personal letter. When Paul writes most of his letters, he's writing to an entire church, and the whole church would read the letter. 
By the way, in the, the letter today, he's going to say, you should give yourself to the public reading of God's Word. And that's what we do at Thomas Road. Every week we read God's Word out loud. And I would like to encourage you, even in your life groups, my life group, uh, through some of these shorter books, you can't do it when you get to Revelation, it's a little challenging, but uh, for these shorter books, these shorter letters, our life group has been reading the entire letter out loud in one sitting. I want to encourage you to do that. You will hear things that you haven't uh, heard before and observe things. So he's writing this, this time not to an entire church, but to an individual. And four letters of Paul have been preserved in Scripture to different people, individuals, two to Timothy, one to Titus, and one to Philemon, who touches on a subject that we'll read about today. He's writing, giving him encouragement. And so when you listen to this, it's a personal letter, so Paul's going to talk a little bit more directly than he might if he was talking to an entire church. And as you hear it, listen to it this way. It's an older voice to younger ears so that thou, that younger voice can speak to all the ears. It's coming from Paul to Timothy to the church, coaching for God's house. He's bold in his writing, and he's going to say some things that might be a little bit challenging. And he speaks here, chapter 3, verse 15. Here's the key. I have written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's house. Don't you wish people just knew how to conduct themselves today? Conduct themselves on social media, conduct themselves on Ward's Road, conduct themselves in school, at jobs. And God here today says, I'm concerned about how you conduct yourself in the house, in my house. So Paul's going to talk pretty boldly, but he's a humble man. Sometimes Paul gets beat up. Well, Paul's already, he's always saying things about people. And in this letter, in a couple minutes, he's going to say something about women, and then he's going to talk about servants. So pay attention. But lest you think that Paul is some arrogant, religious, you know, despot, he's very humble. And notice what he says in chapter 1, verse 15. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. And for two verses, he talks to Timothy about how bad he was. He says, I, I'm not boasting. Remember Philippians? He says, I'm not boasting. I know where I came from. But when he remembers how bad he is, he remembers how good God is. And he breaks out into a doxology. In his letters, sometimes he'll give a doxology. A doxology is just a good saying about God. And he starts his book with one, chapter 1, verse 17. When he thinks about how bad he was, he says, Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And church, we say, amen. That's our God. And so he starts with this doxology, but he's going to move into talking about some instructions, especially to ward off some of the false teaching that is around the church even back then. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says this, and I almost read it with a smile. He says, now the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, explicitly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. You think, Paul? Have you read social media in, in you know, 2021? Have some departed from the faith? Sadly, yes. He says, Paul, Paul says, Timothy, in the last days, the Holy Spirit's telling me there's going to be people that just walk away from what they were taught. So he's going to give us instructions now, and we have to listen and we have to obey because it's the words of God. 
So he's going to give some conduct coaching to six groups of us in here. So please, let's all pay attention when we come to your chapter. Chapter 2, he starts with men and women. Verse 1 and 2. First of all, then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and a quiet life in all godliness and dignity. He says, let me just start with the men and women in the church. I want everybody to pray all the time for everybody. Now, to that, I say amen. We should all be praying more. I think we should pray more in this church. I think you should pray more in your life group. I think we all should pray more in our families. And he said, I want you to pray for everyone, but specifically pray for those in authority. Pray for the kings. And at that, someone in here rolled your eyes. Here we go. Pray for those in authority. Yeah, but Paul, you don't know my governor. You don't know my president. You don't know my senator, my representative. You don't know my mayor. You don't know my king or my prime minister or my queen. And Paul, I think, would smile and interrupt us and say, no, I don't know. But have you ever read about the Sanhedrin, the Jewish rulers? Like, have you studied the Roman governors that I'm dealing with? Have you ever heard of a man named Nero? Like Nero is the most wicked king, maybe one of the you know, worst kings that ever lived, emperor. And this is the context which Paul is saying. He looks at us and says, I know, pray. Why? Because you always pray for the people with power. You always pray for the people with power. Why? Because they have power and their power impact, impacts the people. And so we should always pray for those who are in authority, and that will result in a quiet and tranquil life for us if we're walking with Jesus. Then he talks to, to men specifically. Chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, he says, Therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Now he just told everybody to pray, but now he uses the Greek word for men specifically. Why? Because guys, sometimes we need to be hit over the head with it a couple times, right? Men, pray. I wish that all men would pray when they come into God's house. What would it be like, men, if we led the church in prayer? What would it be like if we led our life groups and our families and the teams we serve on and the departments we're in and our neighborhoods and at work and at school? What if we stood up and say, let's pray? So men, Take the lead. Pray, because when men are praying, what does it push aside? Anger. You can't be angry when you're praying. And you can't be arguing and debating foolish debates like Timothy, he talks about, when you are praying. So we need to pray. Now, guys, there's a lot more in 1 Timothy for you, but you're going to have to come back Tuesday to hear it. All right? So our men's life uh, that our team leads on Tuesday mornings and Tuesday night, there's three more important things in this book that we're going to talk about. If you'll come back uh, Tuesday morning or Tuesday night for men's life, and we're going to dig into some more things there. And then he moves on to the women. He says, also in the same way, because women are coming into the house to the house of God as well. He said, also the women are to dress themselves in modest clothing with decency and good sense, but with good works as is proper for women who profess to worship God. 
Paul wants to speak to the women in the church, and he has some, he has some consulting, some coaching. And he says, I want to talk to you about the way that you dress because God cares about how women dress. And so I thought what we'd do is I'm just going to take a moment. And on the screens, I'm going to put some slides of some different dress that women commonly wear. And I want us to look at those and decide whether... We ain't going to do that. Oh, Duke, I about lost him. Some of you, just, there was a cold chill of legalism that just ran some down some backs, didn't it? Some of you women had a daddy or a granddaddy or a preacher or a youth pastor or a school principal or a mama or somebody that was legalistic with you about clothing. Paul is not, listen to me, Paul is not trying to drag you into the legalistic closet with your clothes. He's not talking about legalism, but we have to pay attention. Isaiah, Solomon, Paul, and Peter tell us that God has an idea of how women should dress themselves. God has an opinion. God does. Not this preacher, not a pastor, not a man. God has an opinion. Isaiah, Solomon, Peter, and Paul. And so here's how you hear this, if I could humbly say it. God is saying, this is how I want the women to dress, modestly, decently, and with good sense. Why? Because women are the beauty bearers of God. Women, you are the beauty bearers of God. And if you are clothing yourselves in a way that mars the beauty of God, it hurts the house when we come together. And so here's how you do it. You say, well, how do we decide? I know there's going to be debates, right? But honestly, I feel like this is what Paul's saying. Younger women and older women, get together in your home, in your family, in your life groups. And if you will start by saying, Father, what is modest, what is decent, and what is good sense to you so that we can be the beauty bearers of God? I honestly think that God will answer that. Do you? I mean, yes, we'll still have some disagreements about certain things, but I think God is saying something good. And then he goes on, thank you, Paul. We talked about women's clothes. It should be easy and uphill from here, right? Nope. A woman is to learn quietly with full submission. I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet. Well, let's move on. That's all I have to, on that passage. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. Boy, we hear things in our 21st century ears, don't we? But hear things in a first century ear. Yeah, Paul's always the bad guy. He's down on women. Paul is lifting women up in the church. Greek culture, Roman culture, Jewish culture, they weren't encouraged to learn. Hear what he's saying. You jump to the silence and the quiet. He's saying, I want women to learn. That's a celebration. That is a lifting up of women. Yes, he is saying in quietness and submission, but that speaks to an Eve and an Adam thing. By the way, we can't pretend that Eden didn't happen. We cannot live our lives in Lynchburg or wherever you're watching today in 2021 and say, well, Eden didn't happen. The Garden of Eden was real. Eve's sin was real. Adam's sin was real. There is a pattern even before Genesis 3. 
God, our Father, has given us a good pattern of how families and their roles and their structure are to happen, and we need to read it, and we need to obey it. And so, women, he's not saying to be quiet like don't say anything, because 1 Corinthians 14 is in the book. And, and we read about Aquila and Priscilla and Phoebe and other people. What he's saying here is that when it comes to learning, women should, and all of us should learn, we learn better when our mouths are closed. When we are listening and open and having a quiet spirit, that's how things come in. He's not telling women to shut up. Now, the, the passage about uh, authority and teaching, and Bible teachers will debate this one, I'll, I'll, I'll give you that. I fall into the camp that I, I understand this to be that he's getting ready to point towards chapter 3. And he's going to say here that, that there is a time there are elders in the church that have the teaching and the authority. And they have a high weight and a high bar that they have to hold themselves up to. And so the women are not to grab attention, grab teaching, or grab authority away from those elders. And that's true. But by the way, it also says the same thing to the men in the church. Men can't grab the authority. Men can't just walk up on stage and start teaching the way they want. Ephesians 5, even men are told to submit to everyone in the church. So never be afraid, ladies, of that word submission. That is a good word. All of us are in submission to someone. I'm not talking about abuse. Please hear me. Abuse in God's church should never be mentioned, should never be the case. It's a tragic thing that sometimes we hear those. So this is not talking about abusing women. This is talking about lifting women up. And they can learn. Women, if you ever struggle with the idea of submission, and I, we all struggle with submission, uh, submitting to authority sometimes, remember the greatest example of submission in the Bible. His name is Jesus Christ. Jesus lived his life in submission, and he lived his entire life submitted to his Father. And so we are in good company when we submit. And right there, he just breaks into doxology him again because Paul is thinking how great God is to put all of this together. Then in chapter 2 verse 16 he says, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. A good saying about God. Chapter 3 he gives coaching for church leaders. For sake of time we're not going to go into it, but you need to read it. Why? Because you need to hold the pastors and deacons of this church up to the standard of chapter 3. And let me just tell you, there's a lot there. There's 20 plus characteristics. But let me just summarize it for you. As the pastors and the deacons of this church, we are to be respectable in our own homes. We are to be respectable in God's house. And we are to be respectable in the community. As church leaders, as pastors and deacons, we are to be self-controlled, especially in matters of wine and money, and we are to be in control, meaning practicing good management of the things that God has given us. And we are to have good treatment of people. Imagine that, preachers who treat people nicely. So we are to have respect for people and deal with them in the church. Chapter four, he gives coaching to young people. Now, let me be honest, teenagers here, I want you to pay attention, and college students and young adults, but Timothy is not a teenager. He's not some 13-year-old. Timothy's probably about 30, 
in this time of this writing, but as a, he would still be considered a young man at that time. Some of you say, hey, 30, that's, that's young in our culture, right? He's speaking, Paul talks to Timothy here, and he gives him specific instructions <coughs> as he's leading the church. But notice what he says, and I want Tria, I want our young adults, uh, Thomas Road students, I want you to listen to this because there's some great coaching for you. He says, don't let anyone despise your youth. Sometimes today, Gen X or Gen Z gets picked on, or millennials, or those snowflakes, or what's wrong with the young people today? Well, here's how you close the mouths of the critics. First of all, church, we should not talk down on our young people, ever. But here's young people, here's how you can bring yourselves up and take your place in the church. He says, but you set an example for the believers. You be our examples in these areas, your speech, what you post and how you talk online and with each other, your conduct in love, in faith, and in purity. If you be an example, if you'll be an example in those things so that we as a church can look at you, God will use you in powerful ways. He says in verse 14, don't neglect the gift that's in you. He says, practice these things, be committed to them so that your progress may be evident to all. If you're young in this church, we want you to so live your lives. Paul says, I want you to so live your life that we can watch your spiritual progress from a teenager to a college student, from a freshman to a sophomore, that we're watching you grow and we're cheering you on and you're inspiring us to follow Jesus as well. Chapter five, coaching for widows, coaching for widows. Again, notice what Paul's doing. He's encouraging women. He's encouraging women. And he speaks to widows. And first of all, he reminds all of us, he says, we should exhort and treat the older women as mothers and younger women as sisters with all purity. Let me just pause right there. Men, make it our aim in this church that we treat the older women as mothers and the younger women as sisters, and we do it in purity and we'll get along just fine, right? That's the way it should be. But then he speaks to widows. And my mother is a widow. Uh, my dad passed away three years ago uh, this past week. And we were just remembering and celebrating. And she's walking that tough road as a widow. We have a great widow's ministry here in this church. And I so appreciate what you all do. But he says to the widows, he says, first of all, for godly widows, families should take care of them. And so he says, for the men in the church, if we are not taking care of our widows and our families, we are worse than an infidel, someone who doesn't even believe in God. So families should, first of all, take care of their widows. Number two, he says, if she doesn't have family, the church should take care of that widow, age 60 and above, he says. And he says, they should be serving in the church. To the younger widows, he says, man, you've, it's been a hard road that you've come down and you pray and God may give you a second family. Get married again and have another chance to raise another family that will honor God. But I love this phrase to all widows. He says, the widow who's truly in need is left alone, has been left alone, and she has put her hope in God. If you're a widow here today, put your hope in God. Put your hope in God. Coaching, chapter six, for servants. For servants. This is another one of those we wish that sometimes we could write chapters. He talks to slaves. 
Slavery was prevalent throughout the Roman Empire. It wasn't like American slavery where we had one race from one continent coming to another continent and we're still paying the price and some of the scars for that. But it was, it, it was all races and all nationalities. It was men, it was women, it was young, it was old. And it was an economic system that was horrible and it was all across the world. We wish that Paul was an abolitionist. We wish that Jesus would have signed an emancipation proclamation. We wish that Jesus and, and Paul and Peter and James and John and Jude, that they would have done something there that they would just say, let all the slaves go. But our way is not always God's way. We have to do things in God's way. And sometimes spiritual liberation is even more important than physical liberation. But notice what he says. Sometimes God will say to his people, as you read the Bible, sometimes God says, let my people go. And other times he says, let my people glow. In Exodus, he says, let my people go. He releases millions of slaves. But then there are times throughout the Old and the New Testament where God says, let my people who are in bondage, let my people glow. Let them so shine the light of Jesus, even in a broken system, that they can turn the earthly kingdom upside down with the power of the gospel. And that's what he says here. He says, servants, he says, show respect to your masters. Why? So that God's name and his teaching will not be blasphemed. In other words, servants, he says to slaves, if you will do a good job and respect your masters, it will give God a good name and his teaching will have a hearing with that family and it could change the world. And that's what it's done throughout time and throughout different nations and different cultures. So what is it for us today? Well, here's what I know. Most of you are not slaves. Most of us are not. But most of us are employees, aren't we? We are employees. And so here's a principle for 2021 for us. Employees, respect your supervisor. This week, respect the people who lead you at work, especially, he says, those that are Christian bosses, Christian leaders. Why? Because it gives God a good name and it gives his teaching, teaching an open door. Chapter six, he ends with coaching towards the wealthy, the wealthy. You say, yep, there we go. Here we go, the rich people. That's right. Paul's going to go after those one percenters. Be real careful. By the way, does God, is he angry? Does he hate rich people? No. Some of God's best friends in this book are rich. Abraham, David, Solomon. It's not whether we have wealth, it's what? Does wealth have us? And he talks about it here. Now, by the way, also be careful about that who's wealthy and that 1% thing. I'm always reminded, Google your salary. If you made $25,000 or more last year, you're wealthier than 90% of the world. Let me repeat that. If you made $25,000 or more last year, you're wealthier than 90% of the world. I see you, you 10%ers. Hey, God's given us a lot to be generous with, hasn't he? But here's what he says to wealthy people. He says, wealthy people, be content with food and clothing. Be happy with what God 
gives you. Don't fall into a trap, the snare. Don't love money because that's a root of evil and you crave it. And he says some people have even wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But here's what you are to do. If you're rich in this present age, don't set your hope on your portfolio or your retirement. But put your hope in God. He richly provides, play on words, he richly provides everything you need. And he says, if you're wealthy in this life, be generous and share your stuff. And store up in heaven, heavenly things, because we're going to live with God forever. Coaching for everyday life in God's house. God has coached us through 1 Timothy. God has told the men in here, we are to pray and push away anger and arguments. So men, do that this week. To the women, he says, come into the house of God. Be the beauty bearers. Dress in such a way that magnifies the beauty of God. Learn. Drink it in. And he says, even raise a generation of the next kid's child rearing. He says, that, that's part of the salvation plan. Do that this week, ladies. He says to the church leaders, you have a high standard to live up to. Be humble about it, be careful, and be holy. To the young adults in here, the young people in here, he says, don't let anybody look down on you. Be an example to the rest of us in the way that you talk and act and walk and everything that you do. So do that this week. To the widows in here, he says, serve in the church. He says, for all of us to help take care of you as a family or as a church family. And to widows, you need to be serving. And he says, put your hope in God. So put your hope in God this week. To servants, he says, look, it's a hard road that you are walking. But you need to live in such a way that you respect your masters and live and do your work in such a way that God's name and his teaching will get a good hearing. And then to the wealthy, don't hold on to it. Don't put your hope in it. Let go, share it, be generous with it. And God's going to take care of you with the wealth of this world. And you'll have an inheritance in heaven forever. That's pretty good coaching for this week, isn't it? So church, this is what we've heard. Will you do this this week? Yes, we will obey. Because these are the words of God. I want us to stand, everyone. And I want us to read, as we finish, we've toured the whole book. In chapter 6, Paul ends and breaks out with a doxology, another good saying about God. And you think about, this is very practical teaching today, as you think about what God has told you to do. Remember, none of this is possible without Jesus Christ in our lives. This is why Paul starts the letter, and in the middle letter of the letter, he sings a song, and then at the end, he's going to give a doxology. Why? Because if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have no hope of living these things out. They'd just be legalistic teachings. But because of Jesus, we have hope. We have abundant life. And so we're going to read this, this doxology, and we're going to sing. Our pastors are going to be down front. And if you need to come to talk to someone and pray with someone today, please do that. Step out in obedience this week and obey God and his word. But let's read this together. The doxology from chapter 6, verse 15 and 16. He is the blessed 
and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal power. Amen. Father, thank you so much for this letter today. Thank you for your good words to so many groups of people in the church. God, we love you. We come to you for salvation, and we come to you to live out that salvation every week. God, I pray that if anyone doesn't know you, they need a closer walk, that they will come and talk today. But God, you sent your son Jesus, and it's Jesus, only Jesus, and we love him. Thank you, Lord, for your love. In your name we pray. Amen. As we prepare to go, let's just sing this little chorus together. Holy King Almighty Lord, saints and angels all adore, I join with them and bow before Jesus, only Jesus. Can we sing that one more time together? Holy, holy King Almighty. great word, Pastor Matt. God bless you as you go. Serve him, love him, live for him this week. I want to thank you for joining with us today. If you've never come to the place of recognition of being a sinner and needing a Savior, you can do so right now. Believing that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again to give you eternal life. Just ask Him to save you today. Now, if you'd like to talk further about what it is that God has done for you in the giving of His Son, Jesus, we'd love to chat with you about that information. I would encourage you to email me at the address that is on the screen. It's pastor at trbc.org. We would love to connect with you to help you begin a brand new journey with Jesus Christ in your life. If you'd also like to help contribute to our ministries, we take this message of the gospel around the world. Go to the link on the screen today and help us help others with the amazing message of God's love. Help us let people know that God loves them, that Christ died for them, and that we can find hope in Jesus.